Our passage this morning comes from the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 2. Again, we're in the birth narratives in Luke's gospel. And so, as is appropriate, we rejoiced in John's birth last week, but only because he was given as the Messiah's forerunner. So this morning we have the big show. John pointed us ahead to this one. As odd and attention-grabbing as he was in his own birth and in his whole life and ministry, if you ever met John with his wild eyes and his matted hair, he would have told you to pay attention to this one and to rejoice because of him. So this morning we'll see why. You don't have the same pleasure that we do when we stand up at the pulpit of looking out and seeing what everyone does during the worship service. You don't get to see the rejoicing that we do in people like Parker Steinbrook, who had a one-man stadium wave during our singing this morning. That's the kind of rejoicing the Incarnation brings to us. That's the kind we have this morning in our passage. So little Christians, young worshipers and theologians... This morning we're going to see shepherds, and I want you to rejoice because of what shepherds do. I want you to think carefully about what shepherds do for their sheep, how they treat them, what they do for them, and what this means that Jesus, our shepherd, does for us. This is the good news of the incarnation, the eternal Son become flesh for us and for our salvation from Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds, out in the field, keeping watch over their flock at night, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Lord Jesus, You have given us more for Christmas than we could ever hope to find in a stocking or under a tree. You have become one of us. You have filled more than just a manger. You have filled up our entire humanity with your life. So now would you come and fill our time and fill our hearts with your gospel. 
Give us ears to hear it so that we are comforted and warmed and embraced by it again this morning. We ask that you would do all of these things for us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? I'm sure that most of you did all of the typical and traditional Christmas things yesterday. Your parents woke up leisurely at 5 a.m. with your children pulling by your ears and chanting for you to get out of bed. It's time, it's time. I can't believe it's time. Quick, hurry to the presents. We must go before they're gone. And some of you manned video cameras so that you could catch every look of surprise. And some of you cooked enough turkey and ham and goose to feed both sides and four generations of your family. Some of you young ones made a fort out of all of your presents so that you could sit behind them and then open them with wonder, hoping against hope that this year you would finally get that Red Rider Carbine Action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and the thing which tells time. Only to have your wife answer, no, dear, you'll shoot your eye out. Some of you had scavenger hunts. Many of you took naps. You tried on new clothes and you thumbed through the pages of your new books. When your mom left the room, you looked for that gift receipt that you knew had to be in the box with that sweater. And at the end of it, you cleaned up mountains of wrapping paper and you carefully folded and stored all of the good ribbon for reuse just in case it's going to be rationed next year for the war effort. And at some point, you sat down with your stocking. One of the weirdest Christmas traditions has to be the stocking. We buy these ornate socks and have them monogrammed and hang them up by the fireplace so that people can fill them with knickknacks and fruit. And it seems like no matter how many times you reach your arm down into the stocking, you always come up with more. You never really hit bottom It just keeps coming out. You get gift cards and chapstick and an orange and dental floss and your very own Mike Dukakis Pez dispenser. And it just seems to go on and on. But every time you reach your hand in, you come out with something new. Scripture works like that for us many times. God has filled it deeper than our stubby arms can reach. And so no matter how many times we come to a familiar passage, we never really hit bottom. There's always more good news in it for us. And this morning's passage is no different. Which is good news for all of us, because if you spend any time in the church at all, you've heard this passage preached at least half a dozen times. And you've probably heard it every time with a different emphasis. And hopefully every time you've heard it saturated with good news. You've heard this passage preached as verifiable history. Either appealing to this passage apologetically or theologically anchoring Christ and his incarnation in human history. Pastors love to camp out on the naming of the Roman officials. 
Caesar Augustus, and the census under Quirinius. These things fastened Jesus' life to a particular time and a particular place and a specific culture. And this is all true. He didn't live for you in some ahistorical vacuum because you didn't need rescue. You weren't dead and helpless in a vacuum. You've heard us really lean on verse 4 and emphasize Joseph's roots in the Davidic line. We need this too. If he was going to rescue us and save us from all of our illegitimacy, we needed him to come as a legitimate king. If this Jesus was going to be the promised king for God's people who sits and rules on David's throne, then even if it's only as a carpenter's son, he has to come and wear David's family name. Sometimes we plant our flags in the picture of Christ's humility. Sometimes we focus our attention on the chosen poverty in the incarnation that's so simply portrayed in verse 7. We see Jesus, the King of all creation, the eternal Son, ruler of everything, born without a room in an inn, laid to rest in an animal's food bin. You and I didn't deserve any of it, but you and I needed this kind of humble servant. Because if Jesus was going to pull us out of the dark mire of our sin, that meant he couldn't legislate to do it. He couldn't shout good advice from the safety of a throne room. He was going to have to get his hands dirty. Now, in the early part of the third century, Origen of Alexandria did something very different, but very beautiful with verse 7. Origen was preaching a series of sermons through Luke, and he stopped on the manger. Not so much for the humility and poverty of it, but he camped out on the word manger to tie it back to Isaiah's prophecy. An obscure little prophecy in the opening verses of Isaiah's book. And an ox knows his owner. But a donkey recognizes the manger of his Lord. And so Origen goes on to point out, in a way that would admittedly make most of us very uncomfortable, that according to the law, oxen are unclean, I'm sorry, oxen are clean animals and donkeys are not. And then based on the overall context of Isaiah's prophecy in that first chapter, Origen argues that what Luke intended here was to picture for us that the majority of ethnic Israel would disown Jesus. And it looks ahead, hopefully, to the ingrafting of the unclean Gentiles. Now, whether or not you like the way Origen did it, and whether or not this is what Luke had in mind, Whether or not you're ethnically Gentile or Jewish, 
We all need the good news that Jesus came to draw the unclean. And as we keep reaching our hands into the stocking of this passage, over and over we find even more. Each of these that I've given you is true. Each of them is good news. And each of these does one thing really well. They all remind us that this passage isn't just a birth announcement. This isn't a polite card that came to you in the mail. This passage is meant to tell us exactly who and what kind of Savior has come down to you. So there's still more. But for this one, we have to pull back from the individual phrases and verses. To see this one, we have to look at the whole passage at once and the uncomfortable pairing of Caesar with shepherds. In the beginning, we see a foreign king over God's people. And we see faithful, sheep-loving shepherds out in the fields at the end of it. And all through the month, we've emphasized the importance of the songs in Luke's opening chapters. And this song that the angels sing at the end of our passage is no different. It's short, and the lyrics here are certainly important. They're filled with good news, but they're pretty straightforward. You don't need me to sit down and explain them to you. There's nothing terribly shocking or cryptic in them that needs my description. But to appreciate the importance of this song, you have to consider the choir. You have to consider the choir that sings this beautiful song because it's no choir at all. What happens at the end of our passage is not a biblical singing telegram. Sometimes we miss that as we read through the passage. Many of you, like us, have been using the long journey through the month. And as we read through it with our children, we read and adapt the corresponding stories from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And this story is one of those places that that Bible is particularly helpful. Not just because the illustrations are good, not just because the beautiful pictures help my children to see and imagine what's going on in the story. But in this story, the tone of the description really draws out what's going on. It gives our kids a sense of why the shepherds are told they don't have to fear. It helps us all to feel that same kind of angst, that same anxiety when the angel appears. In that rendering of the story, it describes the angel as a warrior of light and then says that that warrior was accompanied by troops and troops of angels. That's why the angelic appearing is frightening and wonderful. We miss it and we skip past the word host in our translations. But for the original Greek readers of Luke's gospel, this is an unmistakable military term. This isn't some single company or battalion that showed up. 
This is at least the bulk, if not the whole, of God's armed forces filling the sky and singing praises at the arrival of a new infant king. Coming out to the shepherds in the dark fields, this is the full-out military processional of God's shepherd king. And while we see that these shepherds are about to go to him, narratively and cosmically, Luke gives us this, this kind of fanfare to remind us that our king is the one who has come down to us. Our king is the one who is triumphantly making his entrance. And so this is his royal parade. And so that's the difference Luke draws for his readers through the passage. It's between Caesar and God's shepherd king. Some of this would have been immediately apparent to, to Luke's first readers because they didn't have to look up who Caesar Augustus was. They didn't have to do research to find out what kind of administration he ran. They knew him from the papers. They knew him as Octavian Augustus Caesar. They knew that he was Julius Caesar's great nephew and that after Julius was stabbed by Brutus and the rest, Augustus took over as part of the triumvirate. They knew. They knew all about him. They knew his peaceful rule. They knew his reputation for organization and efficiency. They knew instantly that his gift to the empire was bureaucracy. And for Joseph and all the other Jews during his time, they knew that this meant more efficient taxation. Which, incidentally, before I go any farther, I want you to know this passage is not some piece of anti-census propaganda. When the government sends you a census, you don't have to consult your WWJD bracelet to find out what to do. You just fill it out. Jesus started his life on earth by submitting himself to the census and taxation of a Roman Caesar. And so the point the Holy Spirit is making for us here isn't political, it isn't economic. He's drawing out the difference between all of our Caesars and God's singular shepherd king. Caesar calls out to his subjects, come and make yourself known. I need to extract taxes from you. You and all that you have belongs to my empire. So come and register. But Jesus answers back. Jesus answers back to his own people. And he says, I am your shepherd king. I already know and love all of those who belong to me. And I have come to bring you all of my peace, all of my joy, all of my life. I have come to bring you all that is mine. Everything I have is yours. And Jesus doesn't have to categorize and divide you to do it. Jesus doesn't call for your registration. He doesn't ask you to come and sign up so that he can get what he's due. 
He comes bearing gifts. And He comes with a triumphal fanfare as a king who has come to His people. I went to the store this week to buy a Christmas card for a friend. And if you've bought any card in the last several years, you know it's hard enough, even in the Christmas section, to find a card that isn't an offsides pun or some awkward innuendo. But on top of all of that, the cards have gotten too specific. This is nothing new. This is nothing original to me. Seinfeld and George Carlin and Brian Regan and surely several other comedians have brought this to your attention. But there are cards for every subset, every tiny relationship you might have. They have cards for young sons and adult daughters. There are sections devoted to second nephews, third cousins, step-siblings, newly married couples. But there are very few cards with regular greetings for regular friends that you care about. As I was moving through all of the sections, my favorite card was in one of my favorite sections. I picked up the card and it had a really bad oil painting of a sleepy little snow-covered town. At the bottom, the card read, As our mail carrier, you don't often get to see how many smiles you've delivered along with notes and packages. Merry Christmas. This was one of several cards in the Merry Christmas to Mail Carrier section. I didn't need that. But we crave and establish and live in an endless list of self imposed subcategories. And that's exactly what Jesus is undoing in his incarnation. To him, you have never been just a registration. You have never been a piece of random data lumped in with all the other entry-level professionals ages 23 to 27 and a half. I'm always encouraged when I talk to Jim Pachta about the gospel. This week was no exception. I needed our discussion on Wednesday. In a conversation about the importance of our language, Jim reminded me that we use adjectives to describe ourselves in ways that minimize Jesus' ownership over us, and in ways that undo and belittle his work in us. And that fits here. Because unlike Caesar, unlike the way you and I want to live, Jesus undoes all of the ways that you and I subcategorize ourselves on our own census. Single parent. Abused. Adulterer. Hypocrite. Victim. Liar. Addict. Thief, worthless, unwanted, unlovable.
The good news of the incarnation and Jesus' rule is that he doesn't summon you to register yourself. Because by his own incarnation, the names you've given yourself don't fit anymore. He doesn't need you to come and make yourself known. He already knows all who belong to him. And he calls us by his own determinate labels. Beloved. Holy. Church. Redeemed. Bride. And loudest and strongest, he says, Mine. Skeptics, Christmas has a lot to offer you, even if you don't believe in the incarnation. There are days off from work, there are office parties and time with friends and family, there are gifts and too much dessert. But this passage and the Incarnation have the same questions for you as they do for us. Regardless of whether you believe in the Incarnation or not, these things ask this of you. What labels do you use to describe yourself? What ways do you try to make yourself known and give what's due? And what would it look like to belong to Jesus? To be known and to have him rename you through faith in himself. I trust that you've all gotten good gifts and bad gifts over the years. I assume that you've had some better and some worse Christmases. And I'm sure that when you were a child and growing up, you had that that one Christmas when your parents got you some serious gift. For me, it was a model car. It looked so enticing and flashy on the cover of the box, but as soon as I opened it, my parents were ready to, to explain that this gift isn't for playing. This isn't for fun. This year, you're old enough to get serious gifts. It has lots of tiny parts, and it's going to require several days of meticulous attention and work. And once you put in the hours, you can put it on a high shelf and look at it. And so what you hear behind this description is, this is really nice, but it's not for enjoying. The grace and incarnation of Jesus are serious gifts, but they're not fragile He wants you to tear into them and enjoy everything that he has purchased for you at Christmas. They can stand up to all the roughness of your sin. They can push back against all of your own census taking. No matter how many times you try and wear your old labels, Jesus declares your new names louder and stronger than any of them. Christmas, Jesus didn't summon you to come and make yourself known. 
and to pay your due. In the incarnation, the one who has always known and loved you came to you. And he gives you all that he has. Amen. Lord Jesus, what wonderfully good news for us that as your people, you don't reduce us to a tax roll. You don't make out of us some faceless list that pays bills and tolls. Instead, you have known and loved your own from all eternity. So you didn't summon us to come and register ourselves. You came with your own triumphal processional, your own parade and fanfare. Not only for your own sake and praise, but also to signal to us that our King has come down. Our King has become one of us. We love you for your incarnation. You are all that we need as our shepherd king. So come and take away all of our old and illegitimate labels. Make out of us what you want. Not just in name, but in substance. Make us humble by your own humility. Make us faithful by your faithfulness. By your own care, make us tender. And by your Holy Spirit, make us your holy people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.